Jodcast, all about astrology since 2006, with Claire Bretherton, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison, Josie Peters, and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, April 2015 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Josie, and joining me in the studio today are Indy and Christina. Hello. Hello there. In the show this time, Indy interviews Dr. Cormac Purcell about the gum nebula, and we will discuss how it can influence your purchase of chewy confectionery this month. Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the April night sky, which will give us lots of material for our horoscopes and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Indy with this month's news. In this month's news, we bring you updates from two planets at opposite ends of the solar system. Mercury and the dwarf planet Ceres. NASA's Messenger probe, launched in 2004, is fast approaching the end of its almost 11 years in the solar system. The spacecraft's mission was to provide the first orbital study of Mercury, and it has fulfilled its goals with great success. On its way to Mercury, it flew by Venus twice, in 2006 and 2007, and then performed three Mercury flybys in 2008 before being inserted into orbit around the planet in 2011. Messenger has sent back hundreds of thousands of pictures of the surface of Mercury, and over 10 terabytes of data from its seven instruments, including a gamma-ray and neutron spectrometer, an X-ray spectrometer, a magnetometer, and a laser altimeter. Among the important scientific results derived from 4,000 orbits worth of data, scientists have found that Mercury's magnetic field lines converge differently at the north and south poles, that its atmospheric composition depends on its distance from the Sun, and they also managed to confirm the presence of up to 1 trillion tonnes of water ice on Mercury. Within the next 30 days, however, MESSENGER will end its mission and crash into the surface of the planet on the 30th of April. MESSENGER is currently at an altitude of about 15 kilometres, the closest it's ever been to the surface of Mercury, and has been sending back the best pictures yet of the surface. Scientists have been able to make out the presence of permanently frozen water at the bottom of the craters. This seems incredible, so close to the sun, but the ice down there never gets exposed to direct sunlight. Some photographs suggest that the ice is overlaid with a dark, carbon-rich material. One hypothesis is that the impact of a comet or asteroid could have deposited the water and the overlaid material. The new pictures also reveal small versions of Mercury's famous scarps, ridges up to hundreds of kilometres long that run across the surface of the planet. MESSENGER has now photographed more than 99.9% of the surface of Mercury, and scientists will doubtless be analysing the data it sent back for a few years to come. At the moment, it has enough fuel for five remaining burns to give it a little more altitude before it finally crashes into the planet it has told us so much about. Its task will be taken up by the next probe to get to Mercury, which is ESA's Colombo, and it's planned to get there in 2024. Moving on to the other side of the solar system, the dwarf planet Ceres is slowly revealing its secrets to NASA's Dawn spacecraft. We mentioned in the March news that Dawn had managed to resolve a bright spot on Ceres, previously spotted by astronomers at the bottom of a crater, into two separate bright spots. However, speculation was rife as to what these spots actually were. New images taken by Dawn during the month of March have now narrowed down the possibilities somewhat. 
The feature, known simply as feature number 5 to the scientists, has been photographed at different angles as Ceres rotates, and the resulting images show that the bright features are visible even when the crater is viewed at an extreme angle, almost edge-on. This would suggest that the spots are located quite high above the bottom of the crater, as the sides of the crater would render the bottom invisible at this angle. Furthermore, the brightness of the feature changes with time. It is bright at dawn, but fades towards dusk. Taken with the fact that Ceres is thought to be around 25% ice, scientists believe that a good explanation for the bright spots would be the cryovolcano theory. Ice residing just beneath the thin, dusty surface of the dwarf planet could get blasted into the air due to internal pressure combined with the sun's heat. The plumes of ice thus ejected could theoretically rise quite high above the surface, giving rise to the bright spots that Dawn is now seeing. In any case, the answer may be just around the corner, as Dawn is continuously getting closer to the surface of the planet, looking for regions of activity. The mission operators expect that the best images they will get will show details as small as 30 meters across, which would finally enable scientists to figure out what the source of these bright spots actually is, which will hopefully be the subject of a future Jodcast News segment. And finally, in other news, a new crew of astronauts launched from the Baikonur Cosmodrome to commence a one-year stay on the International Space Station. The stay, which is the longest so far on the ISS, will be undertaken by U.S. astronaut Scott Kelly and Russian cosmonaut Mikhail Kornienko. The aim of Expedition 43, as it's called, is to study the long-term effects microgravity has on the human body, in view of launching a mission to Mars. Kelly and Kornienko will undergo a variety of tests and studies over the course of their year-long stay. In an interesting twist, Kelly's twin brother Mark, himself a former astronaut, will be staying on the ground and serving as a control of sorts to help gauge the effects of a year in space. Thanks for that, Indy. Now, Indy interviews Dr Cormac Purcell about the Gum Nebula. Today I'm with Cormac Purcell from the University of Sydney. Hi, Cormac. Hello. Uh, you actually are quite familiar with Manchester as you were, you were here a few years ago as a postdoc. That's right. I've spent four, over four years here. So, welcome back. <laughs> sorry you. sorry really about good to be back. So... Uh, you've come to Manchester and, and you just gave a talk where you titled it The Gum Nebula as a probe of galactic structure and That's the right. galactic magnetic field, basically. So I think the logical way to start this off would be um, just ask you a little bit about magnetic fields in the Milky Way, why they're interesting, and how we can measure them. Okay. So when we look at other galaxies, what we find is that, for instance, if you look towards a spiral galaxy, the magnetic field that you measure is also spiral in pattern. And the question is, how does this magnetic field get generated? Well, there are a number of different theories about how magnetic fields came to be in the universe from the start. They all rely on some small field in the first stars. So you get a little battery effect happening in the first stars formed in the universe. And then uh, these dynamo processes amplify magnetic fields until you get to the large magnetic fields of the, the present day. There are a number of different dynamo processes, so some of these are driven by turbulence in the gas between stars. Mm -hmm. And so you can get this mixing of gas, which twists the field lines and then amplifies it, so fields grow. So looking at magnetic fields in the galaxy can tell you about how the magnetic fields grow, what sort of ordered field there is, whether it follows a spiral pattern, 
and what sort of turbulent field there is. Um, their relative strengths tell you something about how the magnetic fields were formed. Okay, yeah, so so basically you have what you call the ordered field, which is the spiral pattern that you see on Correct. a very large scale, and then when you go into smaller scales, you can see sort of random fluctuations that are due to other things just yes. within that galaxy. Correct, yeah. Okay, brilliant. And so how how strong are these fields? Like, Well, how strong are they, for, for starters? Both the ordered and the turbulent field that we can measure in our galaxy are of order around two microgauss. Okay, so that, they're fairly yeah. like sort of weak overall. Yes, um, in speaking in sort of spatial terms, but yeah. um, so I mean, if you think that the ordered field runs over uh, kiloparsecs, yeah, and then as you get to smaller and smaller scales, I mean, processes associated with star formation and collapse can amplify those fields in specific region. But on average, that's the the strength. Okay, how do we how do we detect these things? How do we see that they're there? Because obviously you can't just look up into space and see magnetic fields. So. Yeah, you you can't um, sprinkle iron filings on the sky and <laughs> exactly. see, see it goes. Well, actually, you you kind of can't. In, in in one sense, one of the ways you can detect fields is by looking at dust. So if you have dust grains, they generally tend to be not spherical pellets. They tend mm-hmm. to be elongated, and if they accumulate a charge at all, then what can happen is they can act like tiny magnets, and then align themselves to the magnetic field. So you can think of uh, your magnetic compass needle floating on some water or on a, a pivot, and then it just turns. Of course, space is a, a good vacuum, so there's no yeah. impediment to this. And if you have whole sheets of dust grains that line up along a particular direction, they act as a polarizing filter. So just like the filter in your sunglasses, they'll block one direction of polarization. Yep. And if you have a filter on your telescope and you can rotate it and measure which direction of polarization is getting through, then you can see different angles of magnetic field in the Milky Way. And this this works for regions that are close to us. So I mean the the solar system is embedded in layers of dust and, mm-hmm. and dust dust clouds marching off into space and you can look at these. Unfortunately, optical and infrared wavelengths can only penetrate so far through this 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 dust. So you need to go to longer wavelengths and use other techniques. The technique that I use at the moment is a thing called Faraday rotation. Um, So if you have a parcel of electrons or gas containing electrons and it's threaded by a magnetic field, then polarized light from outside of that parcel of gas will have its angle of polarization rotated as it travels through. You You can measure this and figure out what magnetic field gave rise to it. Okay, great. So that Faraday rotation, that's basically using radio waves at this point. That's right. So that's, uh, yeah, that is the most sort of widespread technique, I guess. Um, and so we use this to measure the fields both in other galaxies and our own galaxy, but it's much more difficult to measure the field in our own galaxy, right? So the difficulty we have being in our own galaxy is our vantage point. You can look at external galaxies and you can say, yep, there's a spiral field there because you're looking at it from the top. You can do the same looking at it edge on and you can see the field that's extending out into the halo. Mm-hmm. You can do that here with our galaxy as well. But unfortunately, because we're embedded deep within the disk, there's a lot of confusing features which interrupt our line of sight. Right. And all of these things are likely to have some sort of magnetic signature as well. Mm-hmm. So you need to take care of the stuff that's in your own backyard or clear it out or sort of correct for it so that you can see the large scale field of the galaxy itself. Okay, so what's what's our best guess? We still think it's a spiral, though. I mean, presumably, if because the Milky Way is a spiral galaxy as well. Yeah. So one of the things that you you can do is that you can use individual objects which sit at different distances throughout the disk as probes of the magnetic field, either along the line of sight or in their local regions. Pulsars are one such thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
pulsars sit in uh, the disk at a particular distance, and depending on how much gas their pulses of light has passed through, then the pulses spread out in time. They also are polarized, and so you can look at uh, how their polarization changes as they spread out and compare it to how much the pulses has spread out. Mm -hmm. And by comparing these two, you can get an independent estimate of uh, the number of electrons and the magnetic field along the line of sight. Right. So that's one way of anchoring these models that we have of the galactic magnetic field. Another way is to use individual objects which somehow perturb the magnetic field. Okay. So if you think of a bubble in, in space, what we're trying to do often is look at how that bubble changes the light flowing through it from behind. So just just to clarify, you mean like kind of a bubble of hot gas, basically? Correct, right? yes. Okay. Okay, and so you've actually focused a lot of your work recently on, on one of these particular bubbles or, or something, at least, that affects this magnetic field, which is known as the gum nebula. That's right. Um, yeah. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so if you imagine that the full moon on the sky takes up about half a degree, the gum nebula, visible from the southern hemisphere, is a faint nebula of ionized gas mm -hmm. that it covers 36 degrees on the sky. So it's absolutely enormous. It would stretch from horizon to horizon when it's up full. And the thing is, it's quite faint. And so you, mm -hmm. you see it only when you put a filter on your telescope. Thankfully, we have very good maps of this in a, a line called H-alpha, which traces ionized gas. Okay. And so there's, there's uh, nice pictures of this. You can go online and just look it up. It's beautiful. But it's very close. And its front face is almost touching the Earth, only a few tens of parsecs away. Yeah. By using the gum as a depth charge, if, if you like, we can see how the uh, original explosion or the original um, bubble that was blown or the process that was driving it affected the local magnetic field. And it enhances the ionization in a region. And because the ionization is enhanced, you get a much better handle on what the magnetic field is doing in that ionized region. And one of the questions is, is, is the bubble compressing the magnetic field? And how, what direction is the magnetic field flowing? as it threads that bubble. And that gives us another anchor point in one of these large uh, models of the global galactic ordered field. Okay. So one of the points in your talk was that basically we don't know exactly how the gum formed or essentially what it is. And, and most uh, the, the consensus theory at the moment is, is that it's kind of a supernova remnant. So basically exploding star um, ejects a whole bunch of gas and then just creates this expanding shockwave that, that makes this kind of shape on the sky. But you're saying that it might not be that. Yeah, so, so, so the gum was discovered in uh, the mid-50s by an astronomer called Colin Gum. And since its discovery, the astronomers have been arguing back and forth in the literature just to, uh, to say, nope, it's a H2 region. No, it's a windblown bubble. No, it's a supernova remnant. No, it's a multiple copy or multiple superposition of different things. Yeah, because it's um, a pretty busy region in the sky. There's a lot of stuff going on there. It is. There? So it, it um, overlaps the sort of galactic midplane. And there's H2 regions, um, bubbles blown by stars. Um, there's uh, smaller supernova remnants. There's many other different things like pulsars and, and so on that just confuse you. So we looked at the topmost region of the GOM, which, which is relatively unconfused. Okay. And we were able to sort of look at how the magnetic field changed across the region, um, how the Faraday rotation changed, and try and fit a simple model to it. Mm -hmm. And so the, the model was of an ionized shell, yep. and it included uh, some compression at the edge. So if the edge was, if the gas at the edge was compressed, then the 
rotation measure signal that we'd get and the magnetic field would be compressed. And you'd see that in uh, an image of the sky or by looking at the rotation measures from background objects, they would be enhanced around the edge of the, the gun. Yeah. And the fact that we didn't see, see that mean that there wasn't a huge amount of compression there. Now, this sort of compression you would expect to find a, in a H2 region or windblown bubble, so a compression of maybe four to six. So um, let me just kind of try and uh, get jargon bust a little bit. When you sure. talk about compression, so essentially you've got this spherical shell of, of gas of some thickness, and it's just basically running up against other stuff that's just kind of crumpling it a little bit and just kind of pushing all the, ga- the ionized gas closer together. Correct. So then what you're saying is that if if this ionized gas just gets kind of squashed together, it's going to be more dense and it's going to essentially rotate the polarized light going through it by a sort of larger factor because there's just more electrons there, uh, essentially. Yes. Like, yes. just to try and simplify things yeah, a little correct. bit. correct. But also it's going to push the field lines together. Also, yeah. So the magnetic field in itself will be enhanced. So you've got a double whammy. Sure. Okay, and so what you're saying is that if it were a supernova remnant, this this squashing of the gas would, would be much larger because it's it's basically just a much more forceful event for us. If you have uh, a sort of uh, just a H2 region or a stellar wind bubble, which I'm going to get back to you as well on that, that it would just be much lower, and so yes. that's what the that's what characterizes it basically. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, could you talk a little bit about sort of bubbles blown by stars because it sounds very poetic and it's not necessarily obvious how that occurs. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So if you have a star over a certain mass, so usually accepted at about eight times the mass of our sun, mm-hmm. it's more energetic. There's more mass going into uh, fusion. It emits a spectrum that's closer to the blue end of the light. So stars over eight solar masses, they emit most of their light in the ultraviolet. Mm-hmm. And ultraviolet light has the property that it um, has enough energy that it can split the electron off in the hydrogen atom. Sure. And so what you get is you get a whole lot of electrons in a sea of gas around the star, which have been liberated from interstellar H1, mm-hmm. so hydrogen gas. As the star goes on, and as it keeps on pumping out this UV light, the bubble of gas that's ionized around the star expands out, essentially at a constant rate. Sure. And so you get these bubbles being blown around stars. If the star is more massive again, then you can also get a particle wind from the star. So radiation pressure in the top layers of the atmosphere of the star can take heavier particles and dust and actually impart some momentum and blow it outwards. And so this stream of particles from the star can batter into the gas and then compress it even even more. So that's an even more energetic event. Okay. And then other stars, I mean, at the end of their lifetime, these massive stars, when they when they die and they undergo supernovas, it's you're setting off a nuclear bomb. So what yeah. you're doing is you have a blast wave that spreads in, into the medium. And as the blast wave spreads out, it entrains mass. So it sweeps up all of this gas. Mm-hmm. And as the gas in the shell is swept up, it, the shell gets heavier and heavier and heavier until eventually it slows down enough and dissipates out into the rest of the interstellar medium. Okay. Yep. Yeah, okay, cool. So that's excellent. So so going back to the gum, basically what you're saying is that according to to the observations that you made that it only has these it has certain properties that make you think that it's it's not at all a supernova remnant, but rather yep. that it's caused by basically stellar wind coming from other stars that are located within that region of the sky. Yep. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I mean what we try to do is we look at 
background galaxies far out in the universe than our mm. own, which are the equivalent of point sources to us because they're so far away. They have a particular set of polarization properties that we can measure. And if you think of the analogy of holding a, a soap bubble in front of your face and looking at a Christmas tree through it, mm -hmm. you get the light from the individual points on the Christmas tree, the individual lights, distorted around the edge of the soap bubble. Yeah. Well, we're using the background galaxies in the same way as you would do that with a Christmas tree, except what we're looking at is the polarization. Mm -hmm. So the polarization properties get distorted by the Faraday rotation. Sure. Okay, yeah, and that builds up like kind of a profile of, of what you're looking at. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. And so you found something interesting as well, which is that when you measure kind of the slightly larger scale magnetic field around the gum, and you, you find the field has a so-called angle. So when you talk about the pitch angle of, of the magnetic field in, in a spiral, it's basically how much that field is inclined with respect to this kind of the, the axis, I suppose. And so you find something that basically doesn't agree with sort of large scale pitch angle measurements of the galaxy. Yeah, so if you think of um, a circle drawn around the centre of the galaxy that passes through the location of the, the gum, a pitch angle of zero would mean that the magnetic field just flows around that circle. A negative pitch angle would, act, would mean that the magnetic field is spiralling outwards, and a positive pitch angle would mean that the magnetic field is spiralling inwards. Right. And so what we did was we looked at the gum as a probe of this and uh, fit some models, and it, we found that the gradient of rotation measure that we got across the gum along the galactic plane was best fit by a model which had the magnetic field actually spiraling inwards. Mm -hmm. Now, this is at odds with the spiral pattern of the galaxy because we know that the spiral arms spiral outwards. Yeah. And what we think is happening here is that this is just a local deviation. Right. Um, this actually does make sense. Other people have done surveys of the magnetic field in our local area, mm -hmm. much closer to the sun by looking at polarized light through dust grains. Yep, yep. And they find even larger deviations. And so you see this effect also in other galaxies. So another astronomer, George Heald, found that there was a super bubble in the face of one of these spiral galaxies, which mm -hmm. had one of these gradients you could measure in rot rotation measure. And this looks very similar to what we see. So it might just be a ubiquitous feature of a star formation in the spiral arms where you get expanding bubbles or um, shock fronts, which then disturb the gas and twist up the ordered magnetic field. Right. So this is something different to the whole kind of several scales of magnetic field. Yes. So this is literally, you've got this kind of ordered field that gets twisted up in the spiral yes. arms. So, yeah, yeah. so that's really cool. Excellent. Well, anyway, thanks a lot for talking to us today. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure having you. And hopefully you can come back to Manchester in a few years' time and do your third podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for that, Indy. It's really interesting how radio data has recently transformed our knowledge of astrology. We can now see objects like the gum nebula, which give us ultra-precise predictions on the smallest aspects of our lives. For example, just last week I was walking down the street and managed to avoid stepping on some chewing gum. I'd been warned by my gum nebula horoscope. And supernovae and planetary nebulae allow us to accurately predict when you will encounter death, or possibly a firework display. Yeah, and let's not forget that um, wedding predictions have become super reliable now that uh, radio astrologers take the ring nebula into account. <laughs> Makes sense. Not to mention all the broken bones that have been avoided thanks to x-ray observations. Pulsar timing arrays have also allowed astrologers to narrow down the time of predicted events down to nanosecond precision. Although they still have no idea what the actual events are going to be. The next frontier is gravitational waves, 
As the technology develops, we'll be able to predict how much you weigh, depending on your LIGO scope and the relative positions of your star sign in Sagittarius A. Of course, we have to mention the recent advances in anisotrology. Our expert backgroundologists can interpret the patterns in the CMB anisotropy to give you crucial information about your love life and your career. Data from the Planck satellite has put to rest the fears of impending doom predicted by the B-modes. But, if you are a Gemini, you still need to be wary of dust. Clean your room. Finally, the influence of cosmic magnetism is not to be understated. Observations of the galactic magnetic field using Faraday rotation suggest that if you are a Libra, you should stay away from MRIs for the time being. However, this is a good time for Taurus and Aquarius to stock up on fridge magnets. You never can have too many. Gravitational lensing studies also show that, well, you may have a distorted view of your life, and we think you should just take a step back to look at things and avoid funfair mirrors as well. Now, though, we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other predictions that we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the horoscopes and ends. Okay, so my horoscope and end is uh, that NASA's Mars atmosphere and volatile evolution spacecraft has observed a bright ultraviolet glow, also known as an aurora, and a mysterious dust cloud in the Martian atmosphere. So auroras happen when really energetic particles excite the gas in the atmosphere, and then as the gas loses some of this energy, it causes a really nice glow. But the one that's been detected on Mars is a lot deeper than any that's ever been seen on Earth. It could be because Mars lost its magnetic field, so it lost like its its protection against the uh, the solar particles. And now there's also this dust cloud that they found, and it's really mysterious because no one has predicted it. I mean, it it could be from Mars's moons, Phobos and Deimos. It, it could be coming from dust moving away from the sun with solar winds, or it could be debris that, are, that is orbiting the sun um, from comets, which could be blown in the direction of Mars and, and creating these dust clouds at high altitudes that aren't, well, they're just not meant to be there. Uh, so there's no known process that can explain these. And um, around March 30th, Mars is just moving into the constellation of Aries. So if you are in Aries, please expect some light to be shed on a recent problem such as the aurora and something mysterious to come into your life like this dust cloud. Um, Christina, what's your horoscope and end this week? So my horoscope and end is a great thing for all you runners out there. NASA's Opportunity Mars rover has just completed an actual marathon on Mars in the time of 11 years and two months. And this is the longest distance that any man-made object has driven on a another planetary body. So as we said, as Mars is moving into Aries, this is a great time for all you marathon runners out there. And uh, you should be getting a time that is somewhat better than 11 years and two months. Yes, I have seen a lot of half marathons been posted on Facebook this week, so... A lot of people will be pleased to hear that, I'm sure. Lucky for you, Aries. But fret not uh, other star signs. I have some excellent news uh, on the dark matter front. A new study using the Hubble Space Telescope and the Chandra X-ray Observatory has placed new constraints on how much dark matter interacts with itself. Um, They've studied 
72 uh, merging clusters, so clusters of galaxies that are coming together, and they found that the dark matter components of the clusters just doesn't really interact with anything else, even even other dark matter particles. So that's what's known as its self-interaction cross-section. And another outcome of the study is that we've confirmed the existence of dark matter to an extremely high probability, um, known as the eight sigma level. So there's a probability that's better than 99.999999999, so that's 11 nines, uh, percent, that dark matter actually exists in these clusters. Um, so, of course, this has far-reaching consequences for astrology. We're not sure what they are yet, but we know that this has far-reaching consequences for astrology. And talking of dark matter, now for someone who enjoys being in the dark, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. We've been obliged by the Jodcast lawyers to put out a disclaimer here. Uh, Ian Morrison and Claire Brotherton are completely dissociated from any form of astrology. We're not sure why, it's a completely reputable practice, but there you go. The Night Sky... For April 2015. Well, we've pretty well lost Orion below the western horizon as it gets dark. You will, however, still see, falling towards the western horizon, Gemini with the bright stars Castor above and Pollux below, the heads of the heavenly twins. Moving over towards the south is a relatively dark region, no obvious bright stars, it's the constellation of Cancer, but there is in fact a nice little open cluster of stars called the Beehive Cluster, good to view with binoculars. But in fact, there is an interloper, because shining very brightly, just to the left of the Beehive Cluster, is the planet Jupiter. Coming over to Leo, which will be due south in the evening, its brightest star is Regulus, basically the front knees of the lion. I should say that over to the back of Leo, in Coma Berenices and Virgo, is a lovely region of sky called the Realm of the Galaxies. Sadly, you do need perhaps an 8-inch telescope to pick them out, and also, perhaps more importantly, a really dark sky. But it's a wonderful region of galaxies. The Virgo cluster, of which some of these galaxies are a part, is the largest cluster in our part of the universe. In fact, it's the centre of the Virgo supercluster, and our little local group of galaxies is right on its edge. Having risen higher in the sky than last month is Arcturus, the bright star in the constellation of Bootes. And right overhead is Ursa Major. You may just, staying a little bit later in the evening, spot Vega rising in the northeast, it's the bright star in the constellation of Lyra the Lyre. So, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter is now two months past opposition, but it's still a good month to observe it. High in the southwestern sky during the evening, its brightness falls slightly from magnitude minus 2.3 to minus 2.1. The angular size drops from 41.5 to 38 arc seconds. It spends this month in Cancer hardly moving as it ends its retrograde motion westwards and slowly begins its eastward progress towards Leo. As I've said many times, with a small telescope, you should easily see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot 
and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. And if you look on the night sky page, just put night sky Jodrell Bank into Google or a search engine, the page will come up and it gives in the highlights a list of the times when the red spot is facing the Earth. So plus or minus an hour or so, you should have a chance to spot it. Well, Saturn is now rising in the evening. Earlier each night, shining at magnitude plus 0.3 and actually brightening somewhat to plus 0.1 during the month. It lies in Scorpius, very close to the left-hand star of the fan that marks its head. Its diameter increases a bit from 17.8 to 18.4 arc seconds. It'll be due south in the early hours of the morning at an elevation of about 22 degrees. The beautiful ring system has now opened out to about 25 degrees to the line of sight, virtually as open as it ever gets. If only Saturn were higher up in the ecliptic, its elevation never gets above 22 degrees, so the atmosphere will hinder our view of this most beautiful planet. And sadly, this will get worse as the years go by for quite some time. Mercury passes behind the Sun, which is called superior conjunction, on the 10th of April so cannot be seen until later in the month. On the 19th, perhaps, shining at magnitude, minus 1.4, so quite bright, it should become visible very low in the west-northwest about 45 minutes after the sun has set. It will gradually rise higher in the sky until next month, on the 7th of May, it reaches its greatest elongation, east of 22 degrees. That's the angle between Mercury and the Sun on that day. Well, Mars, having graced our evening skies for many months, we saw a wonderful grouping of Venus, Mars and a thin crescent moon late in February. It's now sinking finely into the Sun's glare. It will lie close to, far brighter, Mercury, around the 19th to 24th of the month, and that's probably about the last time we'll see it for a while. With an angular size of just four arc seconds, no details will be seen on its near fully illuminated salmon pink surface. Venus is shining brightly at magnitude minus four all month and rises higher in the western sky after sunset as the month progresses. It starts the month in Aries but climbs up into Taurus on April the 7th, lying just to the east of the Pleiades cluster on the 13th. A telescope will show its angular size increasing from 14 to 16 arc seconds as the illuminated phase shrinks from 78 to 68%. Well, finally, what about some highlights? On April the 9th, before dawn, Saturn will be seen near a waning gibbous moon. And on the 11th to the 13th, about 45 minutes after sunset, Venus lies very close to the Pleiades cluster, that again will make a very nice imaging opportunity. Now on the 19th of April, there's a real observing challenge. So I do hope it's clear. Mars, Mercury and their very thin crescent moon will make an equilateral triangle with about four to five degrees between each of them. That's quite close. Now the moon will be just under one day old and this is essentially the soonest after new moon that it's possible to see it. Authorities differ, but indicate that the moon may be seen if the angular separation between the moon and the sun exceeds 11 or 12 degrees. 
and after sunset on the 19th, the separation will be 13.5 degrees, so it may well be possible. Binoculars or a small telescope with a low-power eyepiece may well be needed. Please don't use them until the sun has set, but then look up and a little to the left of where the sun has dropped below the horizon. On the 21st, Venus will be seen in the west, close to the waxing crescent moon, just above the star Aldebaran, which lies between us and the Hyades cluster in Taurus. And on April 26th, Jupiter in Cancer lies above the first quarter moon, about six degrees. So quite a number of things to look at. Obviously, there's a little bit less darkness now, but nevertheless, a good month to observe the heavens. I hope you do well. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere, here's Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are. Kia ora, and welcome to the April Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. At the beginning of this month, our clocks go back, giving us lighter mornings and darker nights, and making it much easier to get out and observe. This year, the clocks change on Easter weekend, the night of the 4th to the 5th of April. The timing of Easter, in fact, depends on the sky. In 325 AD, the First Council of Nicaea decreed that Easter should fall on the first Sunday after the first full moon, following the northern hemisphere vernal or spring equinox. And this has been used to determine Easter in the Western calendar since. This year, the full moon falls in the early hours of Sunday 5th April New Zealand time, and will give us the first total lunar eclipse of the year. Unfortunately, this eclipse won't be as spectacular as last October's, with totality lasting only seven minutes, but it is otherwise well-placed for viewing in New Zealand. The penumbral phase, where the moon enters into the outer part of the Earth's shadow, will begin at 10.03pm, but the dimming at this stage will be so slight that it will be barely noticeable. The moon will first move into the umbra, the central darker part of the Earth's shadow, at 11.17pm, and a partial eclipse will begin reaching totality between 57 minutes past midnight and 1.04 a.m. The partial eclipse ends at 2.44 a.m., just before the clocks go back at 3. So although the penumbral phase officially finishes at 02.58 a.m., this is in fact over an hour later. Despite the late hour and the limited totality of this eclipse, it's still worth trying to catch a glimpse, as the next total lunar eclipse in New Zealand won't be until 2018. At the time of the eclipse, the moon will be in the zodiac constellation of Virgo, roughly halfway between Jupiter setting in the northwest and Saturn rising in the east. Venus is also visible in our early evening skies, but will drop below the horizon as twilight ends. By the end of the month, however, it won't set until around two hours after the sun, and will become a stunning evening star. Saturn is in the constellation of Scorpius, a little below and to the left of the bright star Antares, and is fast becoming a must-see evening object. At the beginning of the month, it rises just before 10pm. By the end of April, it will be above the horizon before twilight ends. Above Saturn and high in the east after dark is the constellation of Centaurus, with the two brightest stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri, pointing to Crux, the Southern Cross. Named after a half-human, half-horse creature from Greek mythology, Centaurus is one of the largest constellations in our sky, covering an area of 1,060 square degrees. Because of its position along the Milky Way, it contains a large number of bright stars, with over 280 over magnitude 6.5, and 10 brighter than magnitude 3. The constellation also contains a number of interesting star clusters and nebulae. 
The globular cluster Omega Centauri is perhaps the most famous and is easily visible to the naked eye at magnitude 3.7. This is by far the largest and brightest globular cluster in the Milky Way, with a luminosity greater than a million suns. Omega Centauri measures around 150 light years across and contains several million mainly yellow dwarf stars. As with most globular clusters, these stars are incredibly old, with an average age of 12 billion years. The cluster is relatively easy to find, appearing as a fuzzy star around 13 degrees northeast of Gamma Crucis at the top of the Southern Cross. In fact, it was originally thought to be a star and was given the Bayer designation Omega as the 24th brightest in the constellation. Unaided, it appears to cover around half a degree when seen from a dark rural location. Through binoculars, it is an even more stunning sight, spanning almost a full degree of the sky, twice that of the full moon. With a small telescope, the cluster becomes a glowing, shimmering ball of stars, with many individual stars visible towards the outskirts of the cluster. As well as being exceptionally large and bright, Omega Centauri appears to have formed more slowly than other globular clusters, with two independent periods of star formation over two billion years. Because of this, some astronomers have suggested that it may be the remains of a dwarf galaxy that was absorbed into the Milky Way billions of years ago. Centaurus contains two naked eye open clusters, NGC 3766 and NGC 5460. NGC 3766 is the brightest of these at magnitude 5.3 and is located a little above Alpha Crucis in our skies this month. In 2013, a team of astronomers led by Nami Molavi released the first results from a seven year study of 27 open clusters. The team identified 36 members of the NGC 3766 cluster that just didn't behave as expected. These massive hydrogen burning stars are around twice as hot as the Sun. They appear to belong to a new class of variables whose brightness changes by a few thousandths of a magnitude over periods ranging from a couple of hours to just over a day. This type of variation can't easily be explained by current theories. However, the team believes that the fast rotation of many of these objects may provide a tantalizing clue. There is also a bright planetary nebula within the constellation. At magnitude 8, NGC 3918 is within easy reach of small telescopes. The nebula has a slightly oval shape and a lovely blue color, earning it the name the Blue Planetary. Centaurus is also home to a rich variety of galaxies and contains one of the closest galaxy clusters to Earth, the Centaurus Cluster, at around 170 million light years away. But perhaps the most interesting galaxy in the constellation is NGC 5128, or Centaurus A. At first sight, NGC 5128 appears to be a normal elliptical galaxy, but with a dark dust lane superimposed across the middle. Its peculiar morphology is thought to be the result of galactic cannibalization, with a small spiral galaxy being slowly consumed by a massive black hole at the center of the elliptical. This black hole also emits a relativistic jet detected at radio and X ray wavelengths. At magnitude 6.84 and located around 4.5 degrees north of Omega Centauri, Centaurus A is the fifth brightest galaxy in the sky and is easily visible in binoculars. Large binoculars should pick out the bright central bulge and dark lane, whilst larger telescopes will reveal more structure. Under exceptional conditions, the galaxy may even be seen unaided, one of the most distant objects visible to the naked eye. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. We've had no post and no emails. 
There has been a lot of feedback on, on Twitter in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've had a really nice tweet from Mickey Habrin, uh, which is, who is at Dicro, who gives us a hashtag Follow Friday because of the adorable accents that come out as Jodcast guests get less self-conscious and more excited about their astrophysics dissertations. Indeed, our guests do get quite excited about their subjects when they come and interview on the Jodcast, and that's the way we like it. Um, and I think the large variety of accents is, is really awesome. It just shows how international astronomy is. Regular listener Fred Kish has uh, tweeted his appreciation of our, our January Extra interview with Sir Francis Prof- Professor Sir Graham Smith um, on radio astronomy and pulsars. Uh, he says, fascinating interview on on Jodcast with Professor uh, Graham Smith on radio astronomy and pulsars and quasars. Of course, um, you can listen to that on the website in the archive, January Extra Jodcast. Uh, we've had a very funny tweet. So obviously, it's been stargazing live recently in the UK. Um, and our very own, uh, Professor Tim O'Brien was on the, on the TV for a few days. And, um, a very funny tweet from the crafty scribe who says, help, Tim O'Brien's face has been eaten by a badger. Please help him, Jodcast. Weird, but groovy and very cool beard. Um, unfortunately, crafty scribe, we have no control over Tim's beard. Uh, I think it's the other way around. Tim's beard controls us. So I'll have to put that off, uh, for a bit. Although Tim did reply and said that, um, He's never seen a ginger and great badger, so yeah, fair play to him. Finally, in the context of Stargazing Live, uh, Buzz Aldrin, uh, the Buzz Aldrin, was at Jodrell Bank uh, to talk to Brian Cox and Darren Breen, amongst others, and our intrepid Jodcast reporters managed to snag an interview with the great man. So uh, we tweeted about that, and that caused a lot of commotion on Twitter. We've had a load of favourites and retweets, um, and we're pleased to announce that the next Jodcast episode is going to feature none other than the man who walked on the moon, uh, Buzz Aldrin. Also, uh, Dr. Matt Taylor, the uh, Rosetta mission director, um, will be interviewed in that episode, so look out for that in the next couple of weeks. Um, but thanks for all of your likes on Facebook as well, and, and keep the feedback coming uh, via Twitter, uh, Facebook, or post. We really, really want posts. I cannot insist enough on how much And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter, twitter.com slash jodcast. Or Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post again. The address is on the website. All that's left to say is thanks to Dr. Cormac Purcell for the interview. The editors were Indy Leclerc, Mark Perver and Charlie Walker. And the producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time, Jordan. Jordan.